we start, as I said, a new expositional series, having finished in the book of Acts. We start a new series in the morning services in the book of Ephesians. And you might ask, why? Why Ephesians? The, the preacher, uh, the American preacher, John MacArthur, many, many decades ago, when he was about or s setting about preaching this same book of ours, uh, and when he was preaching on this text of ours this morning, he told the story of this uh, lady uh, called Hetty Green. Henrietta was her name, and she was born in the 19th century. She was an American businesswoman, uh, a financier, and she was so ruthless in her financing business that she became known as the Witch of Wall Street. And despite being one of the richest women uh, of her time at the w in the world, the thing that she is most well known for is not her riches, but in fact her frugality. She was also known as America's most misery woman, America's greatest misery. Henrietta Green, Hen uh, Hetty Green, was notorious for her cost-saving measures. She was notorious for the way that she seeked to save a penny or a dollar. She never turned the hot water. She never turned on the heating in her home. She only ate cold oats. She wore the same old black dress and undergarments to the point that they were uh, tattered. And only then would she buy new clothes because she didn't want to spend money on her w wardrobe. The rumor is that even with regards to medical treatment, that she would go from town to town and from street to street to try and find doctors who were providing free clinics on that day so that she wouldn't have to spend money on health care. Even though she was more than capable of affording the, med the best medical care. When Henry Hetty Green died in the 20th century in 1916, it is estimated that she had somewhere in the region of 100 to 200 million dollars in, in her estate, in her property. 100 million dollars is a lot of money today, but it was even more back then. Adjusted for inflation, she would have somewhere in the vicinity of two to four billion dollars today. Despite her immense wealth, despite all that she had, you wouldn't be able to tell it from the outside because she was comically frugal. Well, I say comical, but it's not really comical, is it? It's tragic. It's tragic that she had all this wealth and she never used it. Her son, in one of her, those instances that she was trying to find a free clinic, got his leg amputated because she couldn't find a free clinic in time. In fact, many of the biographers say that she uh, accelerated her own death because of her malnutrition. She only ate old meals, cold old meals. She only drank uh, skimmed milk because skimmed milk was cheaper back then. And you might ask, what, what, what is it about this story? Well, it's sad. 
this tragedy, that someone with the resources that she had, she lived so miserably. And it's sad and tragic, and it's a powerful reminder for us that we too can have a miserly attitude with the riches we possess in Christ. The book of Ephesians, in many ways, is written for Christians just like Happy Green, uh, or Christians that behave just like Happy Green. Christians that, that live as though they have nothing. The kind of Christian who doesn't understand the riches that we have in Christ. The kind of Christian who wanders through life as a pauper when in fact he is the son of the, of the king. The kind of Christian who lives his life in a permanent state of malnutrition. Who doesn't know where, what the feast he has or where the feast is. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a letter that reminds us of all the riches, as he says, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As I was preparing for this, for this sermon series, I read quite a few uh, commentaries. And the, the, the witness of all the commentators, the, 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 the praise giving of, of those commentators to this letter is, is something that I cannot uh, even begin to, to convey to you. Someone called the letter of, uh, of Ephesians the divinest uh, human uh, letter ever written, the divinest human work ever written. The letter of the Ephesians is the most beautiful jewel in all of universal literature. The richest, the most uh, precious treasures can be found in this letter. Each verse is, is, is pregnant with wonderful, awe-inspiring truths. Paul, in this letter, he's not concerned as in so many of his other letters with polemics. There is no particular controversy that he's dealing with. There is no uh, particular problem in the Ephesian church that he is addressing as he writes this letter. On the contrary, what Paul tries to do as he writes this letter is to open the curtains of time. It's to open the, the to penetrate the depths of eternity and to bring to the Ephesians and to us the most consoling truths of God's grace. In fact, as I was thinking of, of this first chapter of Ephesians, uh, I was struck by how this chapter goes so well with two other portions of scripture that we are familiar with. Genesis and the first chapter of John. The three of them seem to be related in some way. Because the three of them are not so much concerned about the here and now. They are concerned about the 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 unfolding of God's plan. It's like those, if you ever been to the, the, to the National Art Gallery uh, in uh, Trafalgar Square, uh, some paintings there, they are known as, a, let me find the word for triptychs. You know what a triptych is? If you don't, I'll tell you. A triptych is those paintings that are three panels. There's one, two, and three, and they, they kind of convey the same central message, but each panel has a, a different uh, uh, emphasis. And in fact, Genesis, John 1, or Genesis 1, 2, and 3, John 1, and, and uh, Ephesians 1, 
they are they form a triptych of sorts. Genesis tells us how and what they created. John one tells us who created them, as it tells us that the Word who created the heavens and the earth, He became flesh. He He inserted Himself into the tapestry of the world that was created in Genesis 1 and 2. And Ephesians 3 tells us the why. Why is it that the word made flesh inserted himself into the world? Well, here it is. It's the work of redemption. It's, it, it's as if Ephesians picks up on, on the, Paul in Ephesians picks up on, uh, on, the, on the creation narrative and on John 1, he, he, had, he didn't have access by the time he wrote this, but he picks up on, the, on these threads and he takes a step back and he looks at the whole ta- tapestry of what God is doing. And that's why he says in verse 4, it is a plan that it was set uh, in place before the foundation of the world. Just as Genesis tells us about in the beginning, just as John tells us that in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, Paul tells us that in the beginning, before the foundation of the world, there is such a thing as a people that God has chosen in Him, the Word, that they should live holy lives without blame before Him in love. Ephesians reveals to us that the creator of Genesis, the Word of John's Gospel, has been... has crafted this unified strategy of redemption from the beginning. One that involves us, brother and sister. One that is concerned with us directly. And it culminates, as we read there in verse 10, in everything being gathered together, all things in Christ, both both which are in heaven which are on earth in him. So that's how I want you to see uh, the book of Ephesians, particularly this first chapter. Because the book of Ephesians reveals to us, by way of introduction, some of the greatest themes and doctrines of the Christian faith. And you might say, oh, why are you going to bore us with all this this, uh, deep uh, stuff? Give us the, the, the... the, the two-minute rundown. Just give us this, the, 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 the easy-to-understand uh, explanation of things. Seems to be very much against what Paul does here, doesn't it? Paul here, he, he kind of does what he said to the Corinthians uh, that he wanted to do to the Corinthians. He does to the Ephesians what he wanted to do to the Corinthians. The milk of the words. He here gives the meaty portion to the church. That should be a a challenge to all of us. This should be a challenge to all of us. When we read through these first 14 verses, it should be a challenge for us to to be encouraged and perhaps even rebuked of our very superficial approach to the things of God. It's it's always that, isn't it? And there's always this... uh, seeming uh, tension in, 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 uh, in church. 
Some churches like to emphasize more about experience and about practicality and about uh, uh, life. And other churches seem to want to emphasize more about doctrine and, and theology and systematics and, and, and deep dives into study. It's as if we, we think there's two opposing forces. You can either have one or you can have the other. As we will see as we walk through the book of Ephesians, Paul marries, joins together both doctrine and life, both theology and ethics in a balanced way. The first three chapters, it's, the book of Ephesians is six chapters long. The first three chapters, Paul's dives, Paul dives into the foundations of doctrine. And the last three chapters, Paul's, Paul applies that doctrine. It's the reality that it's not two opposing forces. It's two forces that go together. Theology is the mother of ethics, of right living. And right living is the daughter of theology. Life, as we know from scripture, flows from knowing God. And knowing God is the foundation of life. Some people think that we that we can glorify God with a with a hem, uh, empty head and a full heart. The Bible says no. We cannot glorify God with a full heart and an empty head. In the same way that you cannot glorify God with a, a full head and an empty heart. Those two things need to go together. Knowledge without life. What is knowledge without life? It's pride. Sterile pride. And what is life? Or what is experience in this case without knowledge? It's idolatry. You don't know what you're worshipping. You don't know who you're worshipping. So we need both. We need orthodoxy, right doctrine, but we need orthodoxy, the right living. Right doctrine, right life. It is not a dichotomous statement. It is, it's not a seesaw kind of thing. Well, well, we can emphasize a little bit more doctrine. Or we can emphasize a little bit more practice. No, those two things are the pillars on which a life that glorifies God is supported. Like two wings of, a, of an eagle. They are the, the two wings, doctrine and practice together, are what lifts us up to the heights of divine will and fellowship. So that's what the letter of Ephesians does. It emphasizes both together. It expounds far further and wider than any other letter. Perhaps Romans comes close, but it expounds further and wider than any other letter in the New Testament. It addresses Jews and Gentiles. It talks about heaven and earth. It talks about past life, present life, future life. It talks about uh, Christ crucified and Christ risen. It talks about life at home and life at work. It talks about uh, the, the rapturous experience of assurance in Christ that cannot be taken away. But at the same time, it presents to us a, 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 a consciousness of impending danger of us working out our salvation. It gives us inward calm. But at the same time, when we get to chapter 6, it talks about spiritual warfare. This tumultuous outward uh, battle that we're turbulence that we face 
all of it. Man and man mixed together in these six chapters. So as we come to this lesson, I would say that we should come conscious as we go through any other place in scripture, but particularly as we approach this lesson, conscious that we are treading in holy ground. So we, our, our feet should be bare, our hearts should be broken, and our eyes should be moistened by the sublime truths and things that we see in this, in this letter. We cannot approach the letter of Ephesians with a dry, uh, with a, a, a dryness of heart like the deserts. This is not academic work. As we look at Ephesians chapter 1, as we look at this beginning of the letter, we're entering into the spacious halls of God's grace and glory. And my prayer, not only for this morning, as we go through the book of Ephesians, is that our hearts would be inflamed, is that our our souls, or that our that our souls would be uh, spruced up, so that we would open our lips, so that our feet would hasten to go and proclaim of this great gospel to those outside of this building, that we would go and tell the world of the Lord that gave Himself for us. said. Let us dive in. The first two verses that we have before us, the two verses we'll be focusing on this morning, are very familiar to us. In fact, almost every letter of Paul in the New Testament begins in this way. It's a familiar way of beginning because it's the formal way of addressing the, uh, uh, a letter. He begins by identifying himself he then identifies his audience, and then he greets them by blessing them. So three points. The authorized apostle, the addressed assembly, and then an amazing affirmation. So firstly, Paul address, uh, uh, introduces himself. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He is the authorized apostle. He is the one who has been given authority. But who is Paul? Who is this uh, man who calls himself Paul? Well, we dealt with this, didn't we, in the previous sermon series in the book of Acts. Much of the, the second part of the book of Acts, much of the, what the book of Acts deals with is with the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. He gives it, but let me give you a quick summary. Paul, originally named Saul, born in Tarsus, son uh, of a Roman citizen, so he became a Roman citizen as well, but he was also Jewish by birth. And he was trained as a Pharisee. And he studied un, uh, under the teaching of Gamaliel, the, one of the greatest teachers of his time. He was zealous. He was, he was on fire for the things of God. So much so that when this new movement called Christians, or the, the way, uh, comes to the scene, he is inflamed. He thinks of them as heretics and he persecutes them. He is the, uh, the head of the anti-Christian movement. In fact, he was there when the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned. He was there tending to the garments of those who killed him. And he persecuted the church 
the people of Christ, to the ends, wherever he could find them, he was, he was seeking them out. And in one such occasion, Paul was going to Damascus, and he comes uh, on the way across the Lord Jesus. This dramatic turn of events for him was his conversion. When Jesus came to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he was persecuting the church. And from there, his life was transformed. He was converted. He then went for a, to a period of reclusiveness in Arabia. He, was, uh, he then came back to Jerusalem. And he took the gospel under the, the, uh, the sending of, of the church in uh, Antioch to the world. Three journeys he did. And we read about them in the book of Acts. And I'm not, we're not going to go there now uh, to, uh, to detail the, the journeys. Let's just say that the, the book of Acts finishes by telling us where we left off in, in uh, July, at the end of July, by telling us that Paul was under house arrest for two years in a rented house in Rome. That's where we left off. And so it's very fitting that we now come to the letter of Ephesians. Because the letter of Ephesians was written when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. In fact, three letters, more than three, but three letters are closely related and were probably written within the same uh, span of a few days. One is the letter to the Colossians. The other is the letter to the Ephesians. And the third one is the letter to Philemon. The letter to uh, to Philemon was written to Philemon, a citizen, a Christian in the city of Colossae, uh, who had a, a slave, Onesimus, a, a runaway. Onesimus came to Rome. He was converted under Paul's ministry. And now Paul takes the opportunity, since uh, one of the elders of the church of Colossae, Tychicus, is there in Rome, he takes the opportunity to write these three letters, the letter to, Colossi, to, the, to the Colossians, the letter to Philemon, the, the, the master, the, the slave owner of Onesimus, uh, and to the Ephesians. And he sends these letters together. It's wonderful to see how this goes on to happen. But what we see is Paul writes this most wonderful letter under house arrest. That tells us that circumstances, not even the most adverse of them, can stop this giant of God from bringing, from being a channel of consolation to the churches. He was a herald of good news, an ambassador of heaven, a man who burned with zeal now for Christ and gave himself with the same intensity as he did until, uh, as he did when he was persecuted in the church, until his voice was silenced. And he was killed. Paul was not a prisoner of Caesar. In fact, in this letter alone, Ephesians 3 verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Or then in verse 4, chapter 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Or then in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 20, he calls himself for which I am an ambassador in chains. You see how Paul has a different perspective about, on his circumstances. This is the Paul who writes this letter. Well, this is the Paul with which all church tradition agrees wrote this letter because we have to consider some critics. For 
18 centuries of church history, of reading, studying, preaching through this book of the Bible, everyone has agreed that Paul, the apostle, was the one that wrote this letter. That is, until in the uh, end of 18th, the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, toward the 20th, and even to this day, people started casting doubts on whether it was really Paul that wrote this letter. They go to unimaginable uh, uh, strains to prove that it wasn't Paul that wrote this letter. Oh, it, his language in the book of Ephesians is so different from his language in other books. As if Paul is this monolith of a writer that is unable to write in different styles. Oh, Paul here doesn't address the Ephesians directly. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't speak of any particular circumstance that is happening there. This must certainly have been written by someone else trying to make himself look like the Apostle Paul. Well, this letter was a circular. This letter was written to many churches in the Ephesian region. That's why it, has, it bears no uh, direct address or dealing with particular circumstances. Oh, they go to great uh, lengths and, and uh, amazing hypotheticals. Oh, perhaps someone wrote, and this was quite uh, common a uh, hundred years ago, perhaps the person who wrote this was, uh, in fact, Onesimus, the slave. Where they get this idea from, don't ask me. But they put all kinds of theories forth. But for 18 centuries of the church, everyone had been in agreement. Paul wrote it. From the beginning of church uh, history, it has been said that this letter was written by Paul. The letter itself says it was written by Paul. Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch, in the that he was killed in, uh, at the beginning of the second century. He knew the epistle to the Ephesians, and he knew it was written by Paul. Polycarp of Smyrna, the author of the epistle to, to Barnabas, the pastor of Hermas, all of them knew the epistle to the Ephesians and knew that the author was Paul. Even the Marcion, you don't know these names, but, but, it, but I can't think. Marcion was this terrible heretic in the, in the early church. He, he, he came at the Bible with a, with a, a sledgehammer and he, he, he would say, this is inspired, this is not inspired. Particularly the Old Testament, the, Marcians, uh, the Mar Marcion and the Marcionites were particularly ruthless in, in chopping the Old Testament up and saying that these things are not inspired. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're spurious things that are not for the church. Even Marcion, a, a damned heretic, he knew that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Theologians and academics in the 20th century, they, they know better, right? It was Paul that wrote it. Well, it was Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit. Because no man under his own wisdom would be able to write the things that we read here. Charles Hodge, uh, he wrote a beautiful uh, one of the best commenta uh, commentaries on this epistle, he, he writes this, the epistle, this letter reveals itself as the work of the Holy Ghost as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God. So this is the author, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, not by the will of man, but God himself, which speaks of authority, with the authority of God. 
and he addresses the assembly. Here we have the address assembly to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses this to the Ephesians, to those in Ephesus who are saints and faithful. There is here a double identity. They're saints, they're faithful. They're, they're the ones who, who, uh, who are in Ephesus, but they're also the ones who are in Christ Jesus. This double postcode of the Christians. So what does it mean to be a saint? What does it mean to be a saint? This word that has been so often uh, uh, misused. Probably no word in the history of the church has been so uh, uh, attacked and so misrepresented. Coming from a Catholic background, to me a saint is someone who has lived the perfect life and has done great miracles and therefore the whole Catholic Church canonizes them. Isn't it interesting that here he addresses all the church as saints. Sainthood, according to the Bible, is not a privilege of a, a select few who are exceedingly perfect in their lives. It is the, the hallmark, the identity of every Christian believer. In fact, more often than not, those who are Christians are addressed as saints rather than Christians. I think only three times in the New Testament is that, uh, uh, is that the, the people of Christ are addressed as Christians. But yet they are addressed as saints time and time and time again. And they have this dual uh, element. They are not only saints, but they are also faithful. And it can mean one of two things. It can mean either that they have a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. There is a belief, and in fact this would be correct, because the, the fellowship, uh, the church is a fellowship of believers. In order to be a part of the church, in order to be a part of the people of God, of the body of Christ, you have to have the one faith, the one baptism. But I think, more likely, when Paul here addresses them as the faithful, it's not just talking about their, 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 them being believers, but it's talking about their faithfulness as well. The, the believers in Ephesus were tried and tested believers. They were not fair-weather Christians. Their faith was marked by faithfulness. And they stuck with their Savior and with one another in bad times as well as the good times. Faithful is what God is to us. He is a faithful God. He is an unchanging God. He is one that is unfailing in his love and his commitment to his people. And that's what we should be to him. Which should lead us to question ourselves. Are we faithful to God? Are these two markers, being saints and faithful, something that could be said of each and every one of us here? Are we faithful? Are you faithful to the cause of Christ in this life? Are you set apart? Saint, the meaning is holy one. Uh, someone who is set apart. Are you set apart for him? 
Christ was faithful. Our Lord was faithful. The the letters were written, Paul says that he was faithful unto death. That he was uh, obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And it is the ministry of the Spirit of Christ to make us, to walk in his footsteps. What he first produced in the Savior, he now produces in us. That faithfulness must be there and seen. Galatians chapter uh, chapter 2 verse 20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But then we have a central truth in this address, which is the central theme, or one of the central themes of the book of Ephesians. They are the saints who are in Ephesus, and they are faithful, and they are in Christ Jesus. It shows up time and time again, the, the language of being in Christ. Our blessings are found in Him. We were chosen in Him. And I'm just looking. I haven't chosen it. In Him we have redemption. In Him and we, we have... Uh, in Him we, we have... Uh, all things are joined together. In Him we have obtained uh, an inheritance. In Him we have trusted. You see the theme in these first 14 verses. In Him. And the truth that that's being expounded here is the truth of union with Christ. John Murray, the, 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 the theologian, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, a wonderful book, all of us, we should read. It's not a book for, for pastors and theologians, it's a book for Christians. He says that the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation is union with Christ. What does it mean to be saved? It means it means more, but it means no less than to be united with Christ. We are united with him personally. We're united with him vitally and spiritually. It is a, a union that makes him to be our head. We are the body, he is the head. We're united to the head of the church, but it's also personal. It is also spiritual. It's through his spirit. It is his spirit, actually, that brings us into union with him. In him you also trusted, verse 13, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Do you see how radical being a Christian is? Let me just drive this point home a little bit before we consider the last point, the, the last, the third point. Let me just drive this home. Do you realize how radical this is? Paul is here addressing the, the Gentiles, the, the, the saints in Ephesus, who are predominantly Gentile, and he's referring to them uh, with language that would, in the Old Testament, only refer to the people of God or to the angels, to be holy, to be saints. And he says, not only that, he says that you are in him, in Christ. It is him that does all of these wonderful things, that, that brings all of these wonderful riches, that changes our status from uh, children of wrath to the children of God. In Christ, 
we have a new identity. We're no longer children of wrath. We are saints and faithful. In Christ we have a new master. He is our Lord. And in Christ we have a new destiny. We go where he is. And then thirdly, and lastly, as we look at these first two verses, we have the blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. The apostle here often greets them with grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It, it is freely and continually given and shown by God to sinners. Grace is the complete opposite of merit. Both things are mutually exclusive concepts. The divine grace and merit uh, of human works are so opposed to each other that if we establish one, the other crumbles. And if we establish the other, the other, the one crumbles. It, it, there are two mutually exclusive terms. And here Paul wishes them grace. And he emphasizes that the grace is from the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The God of all grace, Peter says. Grace is one of the perfections of the Father. Colossians 1 and 2, uh, verse 2 says that it's grace and peace from God our Father. But it's also, grace is also from the Lord Jesus Christ. When uh, Paul addresses the Romans, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. When he addresses Philemon in his letter to, to him, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In Revelation 22, Verse 21, it says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So is the grace of the Father of the Son. It's both. But it's not only the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the source of grace as well. Hebrews 10, verse 29 says that, says here that, of how much worse or punishment do you suppose will be though worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified the common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. You see, grace belongs to the Trinity, the Godhead. Grace originates from God. And then peace, which is the second blessing that Paul gives here, is the result, is the fruit of that grace. You cannot have peace with God if it was, is not by the grace of God firstly established. Grace always precedes peace. We have been reconciled to God by his grace, and therefore we are blessed with his peace. Grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, they flow equally from the Father and from the Son. They descend, one author, one commentator says, they descend from heaven from God uh, on his glorious throne, whose high prerogative is to send down those special influences from Christ at his right hand, who has provided these blessed gifts by his sufferings and death. And finally, before we close uh, these two verses, note the emphasis of the Apostle Paul. All of it seems to be anchored in one person and one person alone. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The saints are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. 
and grace and peace come to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as though Paul, especially in this first uh, chapter, he wants to establish properly the identity of every single saint, believer, Christian that reads this letter in Christ Jesus. We are in him and in him alone. So this being said as an introduction, what are the applications that we can take from this passage? First of all, look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And let us acknowledge something. He was a sinner. And he committed heinous sins before his conversion. And let us acknowledge as well that none of these sins obstructed God's will from being accomplished obstructed God's abundant grace from being displayed in him. In fact, you could actually say that uh, the fact that he was such a great sinner further magnified God's grace in his life. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer. He denied that Christ was the, the son of God. He was an enemy of Christ and his kingdom. He hated Christ's followers. He killed them. He was a very great sinner. And look at what God's grace did for him. He made him an apostle. He made him an instrument of blessing. That's what God's grace does. It's not just Paul. You might say, oh, that, but that's an exceptional circumstance. Okay, it was David. He, he sinned with Bathsheba, he committed murder. And even in the face of such grievous sin, he found forgiveness. And God used him as the divinely inspired pen to write Psalm 51. Think of Solomon. He faltered, he sinned, he took many wives, he abandoned God, he started worshiping other idols. And yet, he was forgiven. And he composed the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book that is filled with reflections of, of this experience. Peter denied his Lord three times. And 50 days later, he was standing in front of 3,000 Jews that had assembled for the day of Pentecost. And he preached the, the most wonderful, powerful sermon. And it led to the conversion of more than, uh, well, it was more than 3,000 because 3,000 were the ones that were converted on that day. On the same, time that he had the night, on the same span of a couple of months that he had the night Christ three times, he became a vessel to spread the gospel. Let us not doubt extent and the magnitude of God's grace. He can forgive great sinners. He forgave great sinners. He forgave me and forgave many others. And he employs them for his purposes. Second application that I want to make here is 
to us who were not to separate, but separate were joined or were God has joined together. God, or Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, joined together the word saint and faithful. We cannot be saint and not be faithful. And there is no faithfulness without holiness. Holiness and faithfulness go together. Belonging, professing to be a, uh, a believer and, and being a, having a holy life goes together. There are many here. There are many who perhaps feel themselves comfortable labeling uh, uh, themselves Christians, professing to have a faith in Christ. And yet they have no desire of living a life that is conducive to that faith. There are many who think that as long as my life is absent, uh, is absent from outward scandalous sin, I'm fine. I can profess to be Christian and I need to be uh, uh, received as such. The Bible gives us a much more radical view of what it means to be a Christian. The standard that is set in the scripture for being a Christian is a very high one. It's holiness, sanctity, sainthood, and it's faithfulness. We need to be both saint, saints and faithful believers. It is the hallmark of every true Christian. And it is also the way of life of every true Christian. Thirdly, brothers and sisters, all the grace that we have seek must be found in Christ. It is grace from Christ Jesus. It is grace that comes from Him. He is the source of our grace. Every aspect of our faithfulness and of our holiness must flow from the grace that we receive from Christ Jesus. This is not pull yourself up. This is not uh, work a little bit harder. Well, you work a little bit harder, but you work in Him, in faith, trusting in Him to accomplish His good will in you. And you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is Him who is working in you what is well-pleasing uh, in His sight. It is Him who is working to you to both to do and to will. Whether you're serving God uh, in your home, in your workplace, in your family, in your street, in the, in, the min in, the, in the ministries of this church, all of your work needs to be done in Christ. It needs to be done for Him and in His strength. Otherwise, it, it is damned to failure. It is condemned to failure. Because all of our spiritual sacrifices, as Peter says, are only acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. So whatever we look, whatever we strain towards, whatever we press on to, it needs to be with Christ Jesus at the helm, in the center, as the goal. Always. Because let us not, not be ignorant. A life that begins by grace the life of the Christian begins by grace and needs to be further furnished by grace. We have a constant need 
but grace and peace. That's why the Apostle Paul prays this for them. Oh, if it was like some of us sometimes think, oh, you begin, but you're, you're saved, it's great. Uh, Paul wouldn't be blessing them with grace and peace. They still need more grace. We still need more grace. In order to be saints and faithful, we need the grace of God. We who already possess peace, we need more peace. Because we sin. And our consciences are marred. And, and the accuser always comes after we sin, saying, oh, you see, you're not really a believer. Oh, you see, you're not really in Christ. You see what you just did? You're actually not. I mean, you, you see what you did last week? You know, uh, uh, the pastor was talking about faithfulness. You know how, lack, uh, how lacking faithfulness you are? We need to come to Christ for yet more grace yet more peace day by day. We need to be assured of the infinite storehouse of grace and peace that exists in Christ Jesus. That's why when the Apostle Paul or the, the writers of the New Testament come to speak of peace and love and grace, they, 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 they fail in describing it, and they can only use superlatives. The surpassing knowledge of the peace of God, the, the surpassing uh, knowledge of, 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 of the love of God. Why? Because it is surpassing. It is infinite. And to come to receive more grace and peace is not just merely an intellectual exercise. It is an imperative spiritual uh, commandment. We need to go after this peace. We need to go to seek this peace through grace in Christ Jesus day by day. We need to aim not only to, as the Thomas Cook, when he preached it in a series of wonderful sermons in, in the subsequent century on the book of Ephesians, and he finishes by saying, aim not only to be uh, forgiven, but to be deeply loved by God. That should be our aim as well, as the body of Christ, so that we would not live as hypocrites in our spiritual exercises, so that we would tap into the, to the resources that we have available for us. But yet, I need to address those, perhaps you do not yet know this grace, and this peace. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're here today, and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You hear all these words, grace, peace, safer, uh, faithfulness, but you don't really know what they mean. You see, grace is not just a concept. It is a, a concept in, 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 as we meditate upon it, but it's more than a concept. It, it, it is a transforming reality. Grace isn't earned, it is a gift from God. And when it's given, it transforms us, it changes us. And you ask, how does it change us? How can this happen? It is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In that cross, the Son of God died on that wooden cross. It wasn't just a historical event. It wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It was something that, that opened up uh, an invitation to all who would believe and trust in him. That all of 
sinners who were turned to Christ, who would sit at the foot of the cross trusting him, would have forgiveness of their sins. It is through the, that justice and that, that, that mercy uh, kissing uh, on that cross that we have access to the pardoning grace, to the unearned favor uh, of God. And it's through that grace that we, have, uh, that we receive peace. It's not peace in, in the sense that the world is thinking, that the world gives us. The world talks about peace as if it is the absence of conflict. It's not that kind of peace. It's not the absence of conflict. Christians go on to be some of the most uh, com uh, conflicted uh, people in this world. We struggle. There's a battle, a warfare that goes on. But it's a peace inward. It's a peace with God. It is a peace that, that, that soothes our consciences and tells us that we are in God's good favor. And we ask, what must I do to do to receive such grace and peace? We must believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins, that he conquered death so that you could li have eternal life. Confess your sins to him. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent and turn to God, and you will be saved. That is the preaching of the gospel. That is the gospel that is preached to you today. In the authority of Jesus Christ, I can promise you that if you will turn from your sins and trust in him, he will receive you, and he will shower upon you all those rich blessings that the epistle of Ephesians speaks of. Today, you can go from being empty to overflowing with grace and peace that surpasses all understanding. Today, you can be transformed from being someone who is perhaps seeking to being a saint, a holy one, separated from God and his holy purposes. Will you go today? Will you go from uncertainty to faith, from turmoil to peace? from emptiness to overflowing grace.